Before we begin today's live conversation with Max Porter, which occurred in May at Powell's Bookstore in downtown Portland, I wanted to provide a little background. For one, Max has been on the show before for his book, Lanny, almost exactly four years ago. And as I know you can all relate, that four years feels more like four lifetimes ago in so many ways. I was still at the radio station. Max and I met in person like I did for every conversation back then. And I even drove him back to his hotel afterwards. And we kept in touch a little bit after our time together, infrequently, haphazardly. But he reached out to say how moved he was by the conversation with Teju Cole. And he sent me a remarkable book by the British art historian T.J. Clark called Heaven on Earth, Painting in the Life to Come. And last year, when I was interested in seeing if P.J. Harvey would want to be on Between the Covers to talk about her book of poetry written in the near-extinct dialect of Dorset, Max was in conversation with Harvey about this very book in England, so I reached out to him to see if he might plant a seed on my behalf. And he went even further and reached out to the Scottish poet Don Patterson, who Harvey mentored herself under. And Patterson reached out to the press about Between the Covers. So seeing Max once again in person, having another conversation on the other side of the pandemic lockdown, sharing the same space again, was an exciting prospect and also a significant marking of time. And his new book, Shy, while a standalone book, like all of his books, is also the third book in what some consider his trilogy of childhood or trilogy of boyhood. If you haven't read his previous books in the triptych, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, and Lanny. A couple times today, I reference figures from them, most notably The Crow in his debut, and the figure Dead Papa Toothwort in Lanny. Both of them are mythic figures that interact with and influence the story of the humans in those books. So if you hear me in passing mention either, I wanted you to know that these are figures, not in the latest book, Shy, but in the books that precede it. The first time Max was on the show, he contributed a reading of a poem of his to the bonus audio archive. The singer-songwriter Joan Shelley had reached out to Max to express her love for his writing, and they started corresponding. And this is a poem he wrote to her and for her as part of that. Since then, he's written the lyrics of songs for her and for others. Singers from Bonnie Prince Billy, otherwise known as Will Oldham, to Feist have used his words to make songs. And shortly after our time together, he was headed to Canada as part of his book tour to be in conversation with Feist about Chai. Since we last talked, his first book was adapted to the stage starring Cillian Murphy, and it was announced that it was also going to be adapted to the screen, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. And if you haven't read Max's work, one of the first things you'll encounter, as we discuss it today, 
are all of these other influences outside of prose, of poetry, of theater, of visual art, of music, that change not only the way the words are composed in Max's books, but also how they look on the page and more. The crowd today was decidedly artistic and literary. The author and head of Future Tense Books, Kevin Samsel, was there. Many past guests on the show found early success with Future Tense, including Chelsea Hodson, Genevieve Hudson, and Alyssa Washuda. The novelist Patrick DeWitt was there, probably best known for the book The Sisters Brothers, but also who has a new book, The Librarianist, coming out this year. So if you hear Max mention Patrick during the talk tonight, he's referencing their time together earlier that same day. I should also mention that Max was in the middle of listening to the Christina Sharp episode of Between the Covers when we talked. So that conversation also enters today's conversation multiple times because it's on Max's mind. Laura Moulton, the head of Streetbooks, was in the audience, the bicycle-powered mobile library serving people who live outside, which you can find out more about at streetbooks.org. And the novelist with Small Beer Press, Kelly Links Press, Ben Parzibach was there, who was on the show for his novel Sherwood Nation, and who also asks the first audience question near the end of today's episode. I'm confident that no one left disappointed as this conversation was rich, deep, wide-ranging, funny, and philosophical. If you want to hear Max's poem, which I'm sure you will after hearing him read in this episode today, and to learn about the innumerable other things in the bonus audio archive, and to check out the many other possible benefits of becoming a listener supporter by joining the Between the Covers community, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with none other than Max Porter. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Tonight we are delighted to welcome Max Porter. He is the author of Grief is the Thing with Feathers, winner of the International Dylan Thomas Prize, The Death of Francis Bacon, and Lanny, which was long-listed for the Booker Prize, and uh, less prestigiously, maybe, was my own personal pick for the best book of 2019. I don't do that every year. I'm very lazy with my awards, so, you know, I think that makes it even more prestigious. But you be the judge. 
I'm excited about the new book. And so is the brilliant novelist George Saunders, who says, Max Porter is one of my favorite writers in the world. Why? Because he's always asking the most important questions and then finding ways through innovative structures and that inimitable voice of answering those questions soulfully with his full attention in ways that make the world seem stranger and more dear, or more dear because stranger. He gives his readers, in other words, bursts of new vision. I love that blurb. Uh, the wonderful musician PJ Harvey says, Max Porter has a way of writing unlike anyone else. I loved Shy. I finished it elated and tearful, joyful and terrified, changed by the journey. It moved me and surprised me, and that is what I look for in my favorite artists. I don't think I've read a blurb by PJ Harvey before, <laughs> I've got to say. <laughs> Um, so that's high praise from someone who doesn't give it out freely. Um, joining our author tonight, we are delighted to welcome David Naiman. He is the author of the Between the Covers podcast, uh, which at this point is this incredible archive of over a decade of interviews with authors. It's been praised by The Guardian and Book Riot, and author Gary Steingart calls it the most intense and awesome podcast I've ever been a part of. Now, he does do a lot of blurbs, so, you know, take that <laughs> as it goes. Um, please welcome Max Porter and David Naiman. Hi, Max. Hi, David. Thanks so much for doing this. What an honor. So are we starting with a reading before we talk? Sure. Okay, great. You are a nice boy. We live in a nice town. Okay. That's not it. I'll start again. These are drugs for pain medication, Shy. These are drugs your Nana had when she was dying. What pain are you in that you need these drugs? Talk to me. I beg you, talk to me. Or, 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 or do you just like getting fuzzy and lost? Is that what it is? Are you being pressured into it? Is it Sean? Are you being pressured into taking these drugs? Just talk to me. I beg you. Why no owls? He wonders. Why no twit-twoos in the dark woods behind the house? No breeze. He's heading into bluey still nothingness. Everything seems behind him in a clump. A fug, last chance before that, slowed down, sped up. Seems like years since he moved here. Seems like yesterday he left primary school and went back one year later and laughed at how small and low the urinals were. Urinals, sorry. He felt so big and grown up leaving primary, little muppet. Time's been the least reliable fucker these last few years. He locks horns with the hours of the day, with what's happening just behind him, with the big hot pressure of next. Time is something to get wasted and escape from. He is bullied by time, lied to. Hemmed in and taunted. Best to pass out and wake up further down the line. The end of the world! Not getting a coach to Milton Keynes to go dancing and take ease with his friends. That's what set him off. Imagine! No resilience. He's a spoiled apocalypse all day long, every day. You are a stupid, lucky bastard, Shy. You are a lucky little bastard pretending you're hard. Look at your crash net. A mum who loves you, a good stepdad, food, care, this place, me. Amanda, Owen, not prison. You had all these chances, eh? It wasn't so easy for the others, was it? You've seen how this country works. Police. Judges. Walk a mile in Benny's shoes, yeah? Don't take the piss, all right? Yeah? Hello? Earth to shy? 
Don't pretend you can't hear me. Don't pretend you can't hear me. Shut. All right. Headphones off, Shy. Yeah. It's very rude. We had enough of this. This music's very fast, very metallic, very choppy. It's very on, Shy. We need you off. Yeah. Earth to Shy. He stops and looks about and feels very alone, very small, very ignorant, humbled by a thick, sudden worry. He needs to crack on, don't let the overthinking strangle in. Little ideas left to grow unmanageable in the massive gabber hanger of his night terrors. Worries in the dance! Huge sound system mashing out any other noise. He's paranoid and thirsty. Well, don't go night raving with a backpack of flints. I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. But have you ever thought of your mum as a human being <laughs> outside you? Do you know that the lake of depression you've been describing falling into is a lake that your mum knows quite well? She's been climbing out of that lake, Shy, and now she's seeing you run tumbling in. Is anything I'm saying interesting you at all, Shy? Shy? When his mum said she'd gone and bought a pack of number ones, and he could have those cigarettes, and he could even smoke those cigarettes at home in the driveway, so long as he put the butts in the wheelie bin, on the condition that he sit down and watch a holiday video with her and Ian. And he agreed. So she gave him the fags, and he went out, and he smoked one, and he came in, and he joined him in the living room, and Ian had his camcorder box down from the loft, and the VHS tapes labelled all neat in their cases, and Ian popped in Water Sprinkler Charmouth 86. And they watched the video. And little Shy went, pegging it off into the sea, and his mum laughed, and Ian laughed. And Shy hopped and skipped in the shallows and pegged it back, and then he tap, tap, tapped at a rock with his special hammer, but he didn't find a fossil. And then Ian flew a kite while his mum laughed at him. And then his mum ran down to the sea and squealed at the cold and ran back laughing, shouting, Turn it off, Ian! <laughs> Turn it off, you bugger! And then Ian did a commentary on Shy lifting stones. Surely not. Surely the young lad's not going to get a boulder of that size up and off the... Ooh, crikey, Mikey, he's gone and done it! Bend your knees, mate! Unbelievable scenes here at the world's strongest boy competition. And then it cuts to the back garden later that summer and Shy is in his spidey suit. Too small, short on his skinny wrists and ankles, wet and clinging to him. And he's leaping through the sprinkler. And as he reaches Ian, he star jumps and shouts, Born! into the camcorder lens. And he runs away and he sings, In the USA! And he turns at the end of the garden by the greenhouse and he comes back again, leaping through the sprinkler. Born! Sprinting up the garden. In the USA! Again and again. And Ian is chuckling. And you can hear Jill and Michael and his mum in the background chatting and laughing. And the tape ends and his mum says, See? That wasn't so hard. And Shai says, Don't fucking bother, mum! And Ian says, Hey, 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 hang on a minute. And Shai says, you can get lost, Ian. And Ian says, whoa there. And Shai imitates him, whoa there. And he kicks the box of tapes across the living room floor and leaves into the hallway, slamming the door to the overlapping sounds of, here we go again. And we can't win. And come back here this second and let him go. And he has the song stuck in his head as he skulks around the park, smoking and spitting and feeling boring. And that's all he knows, just that bit. He doesn't know the rest of the song. Well, first, just let me say how excited, I think I could speak for all of us that you have a three-city American tour and mm. you've, you've chosen Portland as one of those towns, so mm. thank you for that. Um, and speaking of threes, mm. um, other people have framed three of your four books as a trilogy, as a trilogy of boyhood, and it's something that you've welcomed. Mm. You, you've seen that framing is a potentially useful for you as a framing. I don't want to say that there's 
something more dark about this book because I would say that um, losing a parent when you're a child is really dark. But there's something about Shy as a character where you could imagine if the wrong things happen, he could end up in the gutter or he could end up in a prison. He's at a really crucial juncture in his life and he's pretty outside of normative society, I guess we could say at this point. Your, your description of him in the book, a child who has sprayed, snorted, smoked, sworn, stolen, cut, punched, run, jumped, crashed an escort, smashed up a shop, trashed a house, broken a nose. So maybe we could just start with you orienting us or introducing you, you, us. You missed out that he, snapped, he stabbed his stepdad's finger. Is that... That's, <laughs> That's really important, important in his CV. <laughs> well, why don't you introduce us to Shy and also to why Shy? Why is Shy the mm. the boy of the third part of your mm. your boyhood trilogy? Mm. Well, first, I just want to say how nice it is to be in Pals and in Portland um, and, and to be with you. You've been in my ears so much. And for those of you that listen to the podcast, you'll know that, that, that they're of such length and such depth and such integrity and such detail that, that you are fully immersed in them when you're in them. And so you've been living with me in the UK. And that's the miracle of the technology, of course, but also the miracle of your attention. Uh, so thank you. It's, thank it's an honor. Um, the thing with the trilogy and uh, uh, the triptych is that I, just, I, I fetishize triptychs and, and, and love them. So I'm a bit like a painter who just knocked off three pictures and then the gallerist says, it's a triptych, isn't it, darling? And, and you go... Does that sell for more? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do people collect triptychs? Yeah, yeah. But also, of course, they're, they're, they're patterned across the whole in ways that writers mean and then don't mean, so I'm pleased with that patterning. For me, why I wrote this book accidentally um, or, or sort of in a, in a storm. It poured out of me following a few projects that became other things or collaborations that, that were uh, ongoing and then a book that I put in the drawer because my agent said it was too dark and it was too dark or it was too angry and it was about the English uh, and it was it was it was a heartbroken book about a, a country I, I believe is broken and doesn't necessarily need to be and, and is enacting various different types of violence upon its its citizens and others in a way that I think is unnecessary and heartbreaking but I hadn't I hadn't done enough with it and my agent was right it was just pure it was bitter and anger so I was wondering what to do next and then I had a strange encounter in the woods and various things happened and I'd been working with some young people and then Shri just erupted uh, and so I sort of had to ask myself afterwards, why shy? I think it's partly, as, as my American publisher, Grey Wolf, pitch it, is that what happens to boyhood lostness, what happens to the existential condition of, of the kind of cul-de-sac of, uh, of shame uh, and rage, and also the, the ex a teenage condition ordinarily, but also in the Anthropocene, you know, where, 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 do one, where does one get one's answers from? Particularly if the overriding condition for boys is that you are a pseudo abuser, you are you are a proto you are a proto violence in in boy form, and you are pure risk, and you're but you're also drenched in shame. So shy is is the kind of clueless beneficiary of various forms of injustice and violence and white supremacy and all sorts and what does that where does that leave him other than with a vocabulary of just guilt and shame and he's also part of that sea of um we we have an epidemic of male suicide here in the uk i think here as well and the numbers are really extraordinary but also boys are failing in various different ways and i'm interested in that and i'm interested in ways that literature can approach something deemed to be ugly or lost and and apply a certain type of attention, maybe a poetic attention to it. 
Um, but also, I, I love I love him, and I have loved him, and, and I have lost, as we all have, lost someone like Shy. And I was interested in this act of retrieval, also a non-judgmental way. So if my first book was about trying to write about mourning with ecstasy, not getting better, not being fixed, but the ongoing use of pain as love, then this was the same thing. This was how to approach someone who wants to take their own life or end their own life and bathe it in a kind of understanding. And that was a beautiful thing for me as a writer to, to, to work on because I realized that I was going to be more or less wholly absent. Or certainly some of the techniques I developed as a writer were going to be unnecessary or irrelevant. Um, so he came from a, simultaneously a technical and emotional impulse of mine. Well, let's stay with masculinity a little bit longer. So I went to your Wikipedia page. I don't know if this is correct, but when I don't know who did it. I think maybe AI did it. Really? It certainly doesn't bear much relation to me, but what did you yeah, find? Yeah, no, <laughs> even if it's wrong, and I'd be curious if it is wrong, I want to connect this to something that uh, I think runs through your books. So in, on the Wikipedia page, <laughs> it says that after you studied art history, you got an MA in, in an improbable trio, another triptych, of radical performance art. Oh, this is true. Yeah. Psycho and psychoanalysis and feminism. Yeah. Okay, so when I think about they're they're easy bedfellows, are they not? <laughs> so when I think about those, hmm. and I think about I was just listening to you on a on a parenting podcast called Brown Baby, and the episode is Max Porter and the Dickhead Dads. You you have three boys. Yeah. And you're talking with the interviewer about the different challenges of being a father, particularly in this era, but also just in any era, being a father, and about boyhood, and about a whole bunch of questions about masculinity. And so I was wondering, thinking about that, thinking about this trio not just being a trio of childhood, because mm. it is a trio or triptych of childhood, but it is a triptych about masculinity mm. also. So how would you characterize any animating questions specific to masculinity? And would you, as I suspect you probably would, connect this back to feminism in mm. some fashion? You do this, you know. <laughs> a combination of research and um, aggressive insight. Uh, <laughs> um, for which we're all so grateful you're the recipients of it. Well, some of it is, is to do with the books as sort of anti-denial mechanisms to do with the body uh, and to do with domesticity and that in lots of writing uh, in the sort of in the kind of social realist mode dads do this dads do that in, in, in literature and elsewhere and i and i've always thought what about the other stuff um why in the conventional model are men absent from um, the, the changing of the nappies or the, 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 the cooking of the dinner or whatever. And, and, and there's a, there's a reason, there's economic and social reasons for that that I wanted to interrogate. Also, the language or that men use and, and is used about men seems to me to give everybody a sort of easy pass emotionally that, 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 that you're sort of suspended from, um, from an emotional interrogation about, about the, nuances of your behavior and your language because you're doing whatever the kind of late capitalist scenario encourages you to be doing. And I, what, one of the things that results in for me is a great lack of ambition about, uh, in, in male company, about what we might talk about and what we might achieve as people. It, it, it results in these sort of strange pre, pre-established, um, linguistic and social rituals, often to do with work or sport 
or these sort of template ready bits of information that men exchange. And I find it hilarious and baffling and ripe for satire a lot of the time. <laughs> like I often, I often get trapped in these conversations and feel like, come on, buddy, that's enough. Let's talk. You know, um, how, how's the wife? You know, how are the kids? All right. Oh, it's hard. Isn't it? so, you know, um, uh, oh, you're still with the Citroen, I see. Like, yeah, I still drive a Citroen. You fucking <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but an attempt to sort of get past that, but also credit people with, um, a depth of feeling, but also recapture, I think, from some of feminist discourse, not, you know, and feminist theory perhaps separately to that, a psychological complexity of, of, of child rearing and also loss, particularly, I think, grief and loss for boys, for boyhood. Partly that comes from now, we're very culturally conservative times in the UK at the moment, but also relatively, like, in, in our, diagnostic tools even about things like toxic masculinity we, we leap to the buzzword it's a bit like um, the diversity drive in publishing it's sort of economically determined tokenism so all the time we leap to a buzzword we've got a mental health crisis and that's sort of where it ends you might start a charity you might do some funding you might come up with a smart logo or some badges but actually the work that's done to look at the level of the language at the level of education the level of social injustice why is it that some boys aren't reading and what happens to those boys and of course the data maps exactly they underperform in the job market. They underperform educationally. They, they usually turn into, you know, um, drug users or alcohol dependent people or, uh, domestic abusers. Like that, that is exact. And rather than deal with that in, in a systemic or structural level or, or at a funding level, the ideological decisions are to just sort of put that problem over there. And, and, and so I, I wanted to kind of, in all these books, just um, play with that. I don't, I, you know, I'm not an essayist. I'm not um, an anthropologist. It's not like I can map these models, but I, I want to have that. Um, well, one of the tools of the novelist, isn't it? it, it, it ambivalence to restore that, that the sort of charged ambiguity about male behaviour back to it. And, and often w with the study of boyhood, but and particularly for this book, realise that what we deem as the kind of society's no hopers or people are, as, as a supposed dead end are in fact incredibly sophisticated and capable of innate and intuitive development between them in the ecosystem so to always go to trees but you know that's my tendency but in the nutrient system of the boyhood in an institution a progressive crucially progressive institution like this which has been defunded and shut now mainly in the uk they're achieving between them really very sophisticated ways of discussing gender and race and violence and trauma and the book doesn't have a trauma plot I never tell you what happened to Shai, if at all, that would make him behave in this way. But that, the boys are asking, and they're not using diagnostic language, they're not using pharmaceutical tropes or anything. They're listening to one another over time. And that's the crucial thing, is you let time do its extraordinary work, and you allow things like the architectural uncanny or the incredibly politically charged space of English, the English class system, you let those things happen, and out, and out of it language will emerge that is to my mind at least a more productive discussion of masculinity than the question of what are we going to do about andrew tate like what are we going to do about andrew tate but even a book like this is really interesting like male reviewers rush to label this book sentimental in a way i find hugely alarming because sentimentality by definition is an excess of tenderness but the alternatives have failed us quite profoundly it's it's a joke, I think. I don't, I, I don't find it very funny, but <laughs> it's, it's a good review. But it, the, the guy says at the end, you know, Seinfeld's no-hugging review is not followed at the end of this book. I'm like, well, no. It, 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 it's a progressive educational establishment to rehabilitate young boys who've all done very violent and difficult things. And one of them has just tried to take his own life and then destroyed a listed building and is standing in his underpants on a lawn. 
There is not a no-hugging rule in that situation. It's a carefully calibrated professional response to touch, as midwives have, as palliative carers have. So to say, see that as some kind of failing of masculinity, on my part as a novelist, is bonkers. Yeah. Like, it's really weird. And I think it, it, it possibly, from the feminist point of view, derives from... I used to read a lot of Klaus Tevelite. Did you read him? Mm-mm. He's a theorist of that pre-World War... One fire corpse, you know, that, that kind of, um, we are stronger as a team, pro- proto-fascistic, fuck the world language, but also militaristic thinking about the weakness of the individual and the strength of the team and all this stuff. And he's, he's hugely influential and, and, and worrying and, and very Andrew Tate. And so I think that even if the critical culture itself is borrowing that language, it's, it's a little bit like what, how you discussed with the Christina Sharp interview that is so extraordinary on David's podcast, but this question of leaning back into the brutality of fact again and again, even when you're purporting to investigate it on a podcast, on a TV show with a government initiative about mental health, you are in fact simply reinforcing it again and again and again, um, potentially even exacerbating it. Um, So I was sort of uh, delighted to see the verdict of the book confirmed in these reviews that suggest it's somehow soft or even weirdly, because there's almost a sort of anti-intellectualism and, and misogyny sort of w- weirdly work hand in hand. So there's almost a sort of whiff of homophobia about this. This it's almost as if I'm being as if I'm being weak uh, or failing the kind of virile tradition of of the literary novelist in assessing these subjects by allowing things such as touch or compassion in, yeah. um, which is interesting and, and worrying. Yeah. Well, since we're speaking about critical response and since this is one of your few North American stops. Mm. Tell us about America versus Britain in this Mm. regard. I remember with Lanny that you'd mentioned that the main character in America was often diagnosed, even though there's nothing stated in Lanny Mm. saying he has a diagnosis. He was often referred to as on the spectrum in some fashion as being autistic mm, or on the spectrum. He was called autistic, yeah. And not in the UK. But I also know in the UK, for instance with Lanny, the figure of the green man is something that most Americans are not familiar with. And this book is set in mid-90s England. Probably we share some aspects. I know if we imagine Last Chance, Home for Troubled Boys, getting defunded, I don't think that's hard for Americans mm, to mm, understand. Mm. But I guess I'm curious about two things. One, is there something you'd want to orient an American readership to that maybe wouldn't be obvious, Mm. similar to The Green Man? And are there ways in which you're seeing the book framed that are particularly American? Mm. I guess I would take as an example, and this didn't occur to me until the book came out, there's a thing in the book called The Ha Ha. How many of you would know what a ha ha is? English. You lived there for a bit, yeah. So often in big manor houses or, or, or country estates, the lawn has an edge where they've built a sort of three or four foot high wall and it was to keep cattle out. Uh, I've been pushed off a ha ha at, um, Benjamin Disraeli's country estate, uh, where we went with my mother in law for a walk and my little nephew or someone just shoved me off it. And there's a scene in the book where they all joke about because of the ha-ha, ha-ha. And uh, a child is violently attacked and left bleeding on the other side of the ha-ha. And the question is asked, why did no one see that he was there? And they all joke because of the ha-ha. But it is 
it is a status symbol and it, it is it is something that only the rich could afford and it is a dividing line and it's the dividing line in the book between the mythic realm that shy slips into during his escapade and the world uh, the material world of the house and the institution and the teachers and the pedagogical imperatives at work there and so these sorts of dividing lines are a form of specificity in the work to do with England, particularly to do the class system, but also to do with that. Um, we'll maybe get onto this, but one of the reasons the book is set in 1995, before the new Labour moment, where a long period of conservative rule had done certain types of damage to certain types of people. You know, I, I, I say it's ideologically determined. It, it really is, in, and, and the symptoms of it are really easy to trace. So joblessness, but also... Um, Economic deprivation in coastal areas, economic deprivation in inner city areas, particularly in the north. The north is, is starved economically and so on and so forth. These are things that conservative governments repeatedly achieve. It would be a badge of honour for a conservative government to make these achievements, and yet again they've done it. And so I suppose that an American reader might not be so attuned to them, but the general picture would be familiar, I think. The diagnostic stuff, because I read that Richard Reeves book uh, on boys... I think it's called On Boys and Men, and it's about it, the American... It's a, it's a book written about America, where the problem is so much more exacerbated by, you know, the incarceration system. And uh, it's not an abolitionist book at all in, in it's some rather alarming ways. But it, the, the statistics are, are comparable, and he talks about the, the UK quite a lot, and talks about the white working class in the UK, and so on and so forth. And, and it's interesting in terms of the data, which is unarguable, and it's interesting in his attempts to say, I'm not... I'm not belittling or ignoring some of the broader problems, i.e. the history of institutional sexism, but, but these are parallel problems and perhaps we ought to think more carefully about the way they are the same problem and the way they are organically tied. So I don't know, I mean, the thing is, I guess it comes down to the line, like the specificity usually with Lanny, the more I worked on it being a British, so the overheard material in Lanny, the pulling of the pints, the, 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 the jokes, the, the level of immigration to that village, the history of the church, the mythic stuff, I felt that the more specific I made it, the more trance weirdly it had of traveling. Um, whereas if you try and make something generic uh, or universal, it, it, it's just less good. And the, the goodness is, should be the thing with literature. That should be what we're paying attention to. Yeah. With this one, I'm, I'm not so sure because the drum and bass stuff and the... You know, I, I broke Hilary Mantel's rule in this book of taking all the research out. It's about a teenage boy and the culture is brag. And the culture is extreme specificity about which, which DJs you love, which ones you've seen play live, who was the MC that night, was it a tape or a CD, have you got the label, you know, etc. And so Shy is all show. And that, from, I was joking earlier with Patrick about my, my American cousins coming over from DC. And even in their, in their first utterance, like, we want to hear about drum and bass, we're like, oh, so embarrassing. You don't know anything about drum and bass. <laughs> you know, like that the kind of extreme snobbery that any kind of tribal behavior engenders, um, yeah. particularly with music, particularly in the pre-digital era. You could spot shy, uh, you know, 50 yards down the road and tell you what type of music he was in because it was all on the body. One of the things I've learned from mentoring young people with these books and one of the things that I feel so ill-equipped to understand about the present is that the stuff is no longer visible. Like young people these days laughed at me when I said, but you all wear tracks of bottoms and trousers exactly this, in Nike Air Force, exactly the same. And they're like, because our styling, our cultural styling is done online. So we've all got wildly different identities. If you look at our snaps and you look at our Insta, I don't know. I don't even know. I don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> but um, whereas we, we did it on the body. Um, so I think maybe those sorts of things, there's more of a slippage between the American newest edition this time. And yet American reviewers have engaged much more with how that's done in the language of the book. 
the sort of bombardment that Shai is in, the weather system in which he moves, social, political, colossal anxiety, very, very violent bullying, these sorts of things. The way that I've done that as a, as a series of juxtapositional um, collage elements is much more understood by the American reviewer as a literary tactic to try and get at something emotional. Um, so maybe maybe the specificity is in fact a block because English reviewers will go on about it's Lynx Africa, it's 1995. He listens to tapes, and that's actually, of course, not the point. Yeah. Those are those are those are the surface things. Well, you you've described yourself as childlike, and your books are all playful in a whole bunch of different ways. Some of your influences include poetry, comics, theater, music in this book, and you see your use of the visual, the way things are laid out on the page, the use of white space, uh, the attention to syntax. And then I think with comics also, the way you play with the size of the fonts, changing fonts. So when we're thinking about playfulness and the way you have characters in your previous books that sort of hold the space of both the non-human and something outside of language beyond what you're doing formally. So the crow and dead Papa Toothwart. There doesn't really seem to be that force in the same way. I mean, there is, I, I'm not going to, I won't speak into some things that I think would be spoilers, but, but it, in a way it feels like we get all of these voices. There's a sort of mystery, I think, between the way your books are really small and also very spare, mm. but are read in a way that feel very maximalist and abundant. Like mm. there's an mm. overflowing of, of voices. There's an overflowing of sensation. There's an overflowing of the musicality of the language. And sometimes the words literally can't be contained by the mm. dimension mm. of a page. But Shai doesn't seem to have someone to talk to the way in your first two books you have these non-natural mm. voices. Mm. Mm. And so in a way he feels adrift within this, this sort of maximal sea of other people's voices. Mm. And, I, and the music, in a weird way, feels like maybe is the refuge, mm -hmm. the mm. non-connotative refuge within yeah. sort of a sea of everyone else's words. And mm. I don't know if I, this isn't really a question, but I guess I wanted to hear whether mm. you recognize something about Chai in that description. I think that my tendency to, to go to the mythic or the non-human was a way of speaking more accurately to, the, to, to human concerns before, um, particularly from the sort of voyeuristic point of view, but also potentially from a sort of cathartic or, or, or even, yeah, a sort of a, a philosophical overview of humanity that might yield something for the present. So that's what Dead Papa Toothwort's doing. That's what Crow is doing. He's, come, he, he, he's known humans back and back. So the, I guess the sort of trickster mentality there from a literary point of view. And this book, I didn't want to afford try anything like that. I, I had to get me out of that and my techniques out of that and, and to create his extraordinary loneliness. But I realized that in order to portray this loneliness and indeed his despair, there's no, there's no getting around it. Shy is, Shy is heading to the pond with a backpack of rocks. There's no, there's, it's, it's, um, you don't need to have read a lot of Virginia Woolf to know what he's going to do. And I think that what I found was that without the music, it was impossible to create a credible 
emotional state for him because despair on its own felt too much like me essaying around him as a literary invention. He was saying to me, but what, but, uh, but this isn't, this isn't it because despair and, um, ecstasy are so tethered. And so one, one of the things that he became so much more real to me when I gave him the music and he suddenly became really nothing to do with me was because that, that refuge that the music affords him, but also that, that, that it, that it is in his body, that it is his two-step mentality. It is his baseline and it is his ornamentation. It is the patterning of his selfhood in a way that is unimaginable when you're out of it looking back at teenage obsessions with music it, it it becomes him and i was really keen to find out the thing that becomes him in the same way as the village becomes dead papa two thought or dead papa two thought becomes the child that interchangeability and, and then the reason with no spoilers the reason that there is a mythic interruption was was because of the preoccupation really with the everyday miracle of another consciousness acting upon him and the, the good the sheer good fortune of that but also the possibility for all of us that that can occur that if you are paying attention there are there are crows there are dead puppet toothworts there are there are mythic undertoes and there are also i mean i, I never spell this out in the book of course because it would be really naff and everyone the alarm would go off that this is a max porter book um but that the membrane between the human and the non-human is thin what we're attuned to, what, what our attention is dialed up to be receptive to, is an incredibly narrow, as, as indigenous cultures knew and as scientists are now finding out again, is an incredibly narrow amount. You know, my, my obsession, you've probably heard me talking about this, but the um, golden mole that Kate Rundle wrote so beautifully about this year, that there is this mole that is incandescent, um, sorry, iridescent, like a, like a hummingbird's throat, but this mole lives underground and is blind. So it's evolutionarily a puzzle why it would still have this capability, even though it can't be used. And it's because of its fur and the incredible softness and receptiveness of its fur. But what she reveals at the end of this piece is that humans also glow. We glow, but our retinas aren't dialed up enough to see it. And so that's what's happening with Shy. And I suppose that takes the function of the dead puppet who thought and the crow is just to show him this extraordinary range outside his current perception um, of what he is both capable of and doesn't need to know he's capable of. And I suppose that's it, it's a tiny little bit of an homage to Slaughterhouse-Five in that regard, you know, when the Tramalphodons um, come down, you know. and But just that sense of abject failure and shame not to have anything to offer them. But what you realise when you go back through Shy and when Shy goes back through that night is, is how much he does know about music and about the 60 million year old Flint that Steve's told him about and, um, and about his friends and about his place in the culture and about his shame and about his parents. And actually he's been soaking up information the entire time he's been screaming. And I suppose I just wanted to give, if I'd had a mythic device, it would have been less of a gift to shy to realize that he has that capability within him already. Well, staying with this notion of what happens when he's confronted with another consciousness. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your contract with the reader mm. as the other consciousness in this book, because mm. this book feels very, contrary to what I just said, I think both of these things are true. It feels very maximalist, but it feels very distilled. Mm. And I feel like I can feel all the work that has been written and then pulled out of the book. And you've said that, I don't know if it's related to what you've pulled out, but you know, there's, there's not exposition in the book. There's not backstory in the book. Um, but you've said you 
wanted each reader to create their own chai. And I imagine this sort of excavation that happened as like a space for the reader's consciousness to go in and sort of co-create the book with you. And this is, this is my one really random thing because it made me think, and this has nothing to do with the book, but I'm going to read this just to see if this sparks anything for you. But it made me think of this interview with the French director Jean-Luc Godard, and he's talking about the difference between cinema and television. Of course, this mm. is before the internet, so before streaming, but I'm just going to read his quotes, mm. Mm. and then I want to hear if this at all relates to you, for you. So he says, with cinema, you look up. With television, you look down. On TV, there is no projection. There is a rejection. Mm. You are rejected in your armchair or on your bed. In pictures, you are projected but you still have to decide what to be. In TV, there's just transmission of something. It's peculiar to cinema to project, yes. And then he says, cinema generates memory, television, oblivion. And that, somehow I feel like in pictures you are projected, but you still have to decide what to be. Mm. Feels connected to your books, to me. And I wondered if mm. it feels, if there's any resonance for you around that. Well, I like that as well because someone, um, maybe Sam Harris, actually talked a little bit about the cinema as a as a metaphor for the mind that you, you that you are in the film, but of course you are only still in a black box in a building and it's daytime outside. Yeah. Uh, and I liked that as an analogy for 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 the engagement with the work of art of of, of any kind, especially where, where we're in the age where we're interrogating the institutional framework of the encounter a lot. And I have done in my you know my book about Francis Bacon is a little bit about that. So yes, with the book as to, to, to use another cinematic um, reference, the Eisenstein montage quote that I've so fixated about in John Berger's telling of it of, of the juxtapositional energy of a sequence, and that the gap between two still images is where meaning resides, and it's like the hinge of a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I see, I mean, that's slightly dated because I don't think you could put modern streaming TV into that formulation, right? He's talking no. about the, the TV as was in the 20th century. So uh, yeah, I think yes, that's it. Um, there wasn't really a question, was there? You just wanted me to say yeah. <laughs> but I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Absolument, oui. <laughs> I think the absence of exposition is a way of crediting your reader with enough cultural baggage, enough books they've read, TV shows they've seen, films they've seen, life they've lived, to not need to spoon feed them. And I don't. I, I've spoken in, in a way about this, the, the tradition of the social realist novel as being a sort of relying on certain expositionary strategies, and that being patronizing it's not it's just the way the novel developed and that you know from its 19th century peak as it were through 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 genre and through fancy and everything and some people have done it brilliantly of course masterpieces have emerged from that from that uh, scaffolding and from the way that's filled in but I, I i guess i've always felt that the ongoing experience that the, the ripple effect of 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 poetry of 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 the what happens in a reader's mind when you gift them images when they've stopped reading and, and that, that's not credited to the author. I suppose it's a sort of authorless thing that the author is off the pedestal. You just like, like, um, Joyce Carol Oates said that thing recently about her, the, the, the sheer size of her oeuvre. And she was like, well, it's, it's, it's all the work and read, read bits, read bits. <laughs> you know, if you don't, you don't have to read it all, read the ones that interest you. Some will be good, some will be bad. But this sense that you just leave the work and people will find it. Um, you, I, I'd like to just leave my books lying around and people will find them. <laughs> but that what I'm, what I'm therefore saying to the reader is, unfixed, unfinished, fluid, 
the, the white space is an invitation for you to, to think in this. And especially if we're thinking about, uh, of a volatile atom and the membrane you know the, the uh, i'm not a molecular a cellular biologist but the, the cell itself only becomes alive when the membrane around it is charged that's a planetary thing as well as a, a you know every single thing that is made up of anything in this world from the stars to our cells requires that charge and i feel the same about the work i can't dictate the charge that you bring to it you are the membrane between it and the world and you will bring your own psychosexual, political, religious, spiritual heritage to it, and that charge will be profoundly different. And that excites me rather than frustrates me. But I meet writers for whom that's a terrifying failure on their part or source of chronic anxiety because they want meaning, they want to control meaning. Mm. Um, but I think to do that with, with, for, with other books, definitely, but with something like Shy, the proposition of an unhappy person who is preventing being reached by traditional linguistic means has to be something that you do your, you finish yourself. Yeah. Um, I suppose the ambivalence built into the, the, to the proposition of a novel in that way, they're like ambivalence machines to me, novels. And therefore, in, in the same way that cinema, you know, I, that, that has to be something you look up into from a, from a position of mindful, it's a bit like, again, sorry, just because I'm listening to it right now, it's a bit like Christina Sharp talking about the making of beauty. It's an active thing. You have to actively come to this book and think about it. It's not um, prescriptive or um, didactic in any way, I hope. Mm. And there was one bit in the first draft, because I wrote Steve another 20,000 words, I wrote The Mother another 20,000 words, I shuffled them, I played them, and I realized I'd taken all the energy out of Shy. It had much more energy when I left it alone. And there was one bit, and I gave it to a great writer called Samantha Harvey, who I saw in here earlier, she wrote an amazing book called The Sleepless Unease, which is about insomnia. She's a, a really extraordinary and underappreciated stylist in the UK. She said, well, it's great. I love Shy. It upset me. Um, she likened it to Mrs. Dalloway in terms of the consciousness. All very nice. And she said, but there's one scene. And before she even said what the scene was, I knew what she was going to refer to. And it was when I had said what was wrong with Shy. You know, the, the, the omnipotent narrator came in and said, because he'd done this thing, he felt this way. And of course, once it's pointed out to you, it's crushingly terrible and appalling. But I can see, looking back in a kind of analytical sense, why I had done that was because I hadn't trusted my reader or I had felt that I needed to predict or control their emotional response to it, which is fraudulent and just, you'd often just call that bad writing. Well, before we go to a Q&A, I did get one question from Twitter from the novelist Megan Barker, mm. who it's a book kit coming out, and I discovered that your blurb is on this book, actually. And Before I stop blurbing. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to join her question to something mm. I'm curious about and mm. sort of make a hybrid question for you. So to me, shy seems trapped in the present tense. Mm. Um, there's no past. There's no future. There's no reflection in the book. It sort of barrels forward. It's full of a lot of interjections until he finds himself in the forest. And only there, it feels like, does the book sort of enact a continuity of thought where you can, what it feels to me like, settle into mm. Shai's body as the protagonist. And it made me think of a Jory Graham line about deep time, the practice of imagining the deep future is a mirroring activity of imagining the deep past. Mm. And it feels like that's something that happens when he gets away from all of these other voices. 
and also makes me wonder if this is the one area that is really an ailment that we're all suffering from, yeah. and it's not shy-specific. But Megan wonders, and this is a paraphrase, so um, this isn't a quote, but so her question's about animism, mm -hmm. and her curiosity is how we reshape our sense of what it means to be human, to change how we perceive, to reenter deep time would be my language, um, not only when we're alone and meditative, but among other voices and in the world. So if you have any thoughts on animism, mm. whether they're related to time, mm. I know that that's something of interest to you mm. and interest of, of all these books. Yeah. Good question. Both, both, uh, thanks for marrying them together, uh, so skillfully. I mean, Shai, I wanted to give him retrocognition and precognition. The book is a sort of hauntological animist proposition, and Shai is at various times in it a, a, a sort of um, proto-mystic. He doesn't realize he doesn't realize he's having epiphanies that might actually be world-changingly important epiphanies um, until a you know a dead animal <laughs> speaks to him. I think the study of deep time, as someone like Jory Graham has repeatedly told us in such startling lyric formulations, is simultaneously profoundly cathartic and existentially um, devastating for the human project. And one, that's one of the reasons why we don't do it. That's one of the reasons why we can't connect it with our lived experience is because it's inexplicable. It's, it, it's too much. So Shai has a backpack full of rocks, but he's learned from one of his teachers that one of them is 60 million years old. And we know that that fact is going to do something to to a consciousness like Shai's. It's going to startle or terrify him in equal measure or, or, or maybe connect to the project of taking his own life in ways that we might not be able to predict because it's hugely personal. I have a rock in my rock collection that is Lewisian Gneiss. Gneiss? 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 Geologist in the room. Gneiss? Uh, it's 30,000 million years old. And to hold something in your hand uh, it, it presents you with cosmic, irreconcilable um, vastnesses within you that are, that are irritating <laughs> and um, bleach for all of us in, into unexpected places. Um, crippling anxiety, violence. The, the, you know, one, one can react violently to that information because it, it, it's like, don't give a caged animal a terrifying clarifying piece of information like that but also the spiritual and for me the animist the fundamental animist proposition that other other things beyond the human have personhood is such a corrective to the artificial to, to supremacy of the homo sapien anyway but also to, to to the to the violence that we have done to ourselves in such a short space of time and that we've done to the planet in such a short space of time so I think to answer Megan's question, one of the things one might do is make interventions at times like this, crucially at times like this, rather than to the more receptive, to the keen-to-learn kindergarten kid or to the, to the already converted peaceful human beings we find growing next to us in the forest, to arm a person with that, with that humbling sense of themselves in relationship to others. Because... What we've got to stop doing, I think, in my view, is having these epiphanies too late in the game. And I felt this in my first book. One of the things that happened, I saw someone being interviewed. It was like Michael, who's the guy that wrote Moneyball? Lewis, yeah. He was on TV talking about the tragic death of his daughter. And he said, so I got to the age of 65 and had this terrible thing and realized there was this planet of the grieving. And I joined them and loved them and knew them and felt welcomed by them. And I thought, 
wonderful, but also extraordinary that you have such a type of intelligence, but you have such a colossal absence of intelligence in this other area that it's taken you to be 65 before you realize that we're all in pain. Like, and I remember my brother saying this, where there was some bully in the school, and I was like, fuck is that guy's problem? And my brother's like, he's probably never lost anyone. And it was a razor-sharp analysis of my, of my eight, of my eight nine-year-old brother. Because all he was saying is, he doesn't have our superpower, which is, which is loss, which is pain. Because what it, what it grows in you, what it, what it, what it germinates in you, is this capacity to take yourself down to it. And, and, you know, and we, we find again and again and again, you know, that's why Amitav Ghosh's book, The Curse of the Nutmeg, is so, world-changingly brilliant in my view because it reminds us that that's why colonialism and environmentalism and, and the environmental crisis are one and the same thing because they are this act of deafness to our interdependency and people get to their deathbeds it's what i mean about michael lewis they get to their deathbeds and you know that amazing study at harvard of uh, harvard <laughs> harvard <laughs> tacos harvard um <laughs> of the, of the, the happiness project, and you know, as if it's as if we should be surprised by this. Of course, people on their deathbeds don't talk about wealth or success or their Amazon reviews or whether they got a blurb from George Saunders. They talk about their relationships. We are relational. We are interdependent species, living and sharing nutrients, and and therefore the, the Wood Wide Web discoveries have been so profound for me because not just because it's incredible that trees are altruistic, but more than that, more refreshingly and, and useful for our purposes as educators of one another, of, of keepers of different forms of information and communicative strategies, is that they're also jealous and confrontational and selfish. And, um, it, you know, species eradication happens all the time. So we've got to stop romanticizing this idea of the animist proposition and actually use it to survive. Like, it's a survival mechanism. We cannot do this with gadgetry, we cannot do it by by flying to Mars or doing Twitter events with Ron DeSantis. <laughs> like, that's not how we're going to be able to do it. But the problem is that capitalism is so entrenched, uh, the caged animal is so violent that any that, that, that every attempt gets belittled. And that's why the accusation of sentimentality actually delights me. Because like, uh, sentimental is the fucking first step. We're going all the way. We're going to actually have to love one another. You know, that's why Rebecca Solnit's new work about hope after, su after such an extraordinary career as someone spreading the gospel of, of anxiety and fear, she's, she's way ahead of us. Because the, hope is going to be the doctor, you know, it's going to be technologically, it's going to be not just you're a hippie, you're mad, you're sentimental, you're compassionate, grow up, stop being so naive. All the things that the screaming teenager is saying, that's not right. It's not right. And that, that, so I think this sort of collective... Back, going backward to the, to what we knew before and what we've unlearned. You know, Shai's bafflement at adult life, you know, are we going to end up like his stepdaddy and just playing golf and worrying about his gutters and buying his car? He's, he's right. It's extremely strange. And it's extremely strange from a spiritual point of view as well as a practical one. Because there's work to do. And if Shai's frightened of that work and wants to bail, this is a completely non-judgmental book and it's coming from a position of understanding that at a species level as well as an individual level. And I think some of that connecting where we are as individuals, that's why Brexit was such a heartbreak to me, because it's such a daft, daft mentality. And it has been so counterproductive and so detrimental to our species so many times in the past. So to repeat that mistake, knowing what we now know, it, it, it is enraging. Um, yeah, so I've rambled, I'm sorry, but I... I, I it's the ugliest book of mine so far, but I hope that it's, it, it's in the baseline concealed within it um, of hope and generosity to one another makes it my most loving book so far as well. Yeah, I think it is.
Thank you, Max Borg. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> so we're recording this. So if you're if you're okay being in the recording for the podcast, you can come up and I'll give you the microphone and ask a question. And if you're not okay being in the recording, you can just ask a question from your seat. So well, if you if you consent to potentially being in it, you can come up and I'll hand you the microphone. If anyone has any questions. Uh, thanks, you guys, for the lovely, astute conversation. This is a little bit of a simpler question, but piggybacking on your, um, your talking about being on your deathbed and we come down to all relationships and also uh, your interest in collaboration, I'm really curious in this oeuvre of boyhood how you have been influenced by or maybe in conversation with your children as you work on those books. Mm-hmm. Like, are they active participants or how do you have conversations in your mind in regards to, to parenting and, and mm. there being active participants in your life. Mm. Beautiful, thanks. I think one of the things I've been struck by is the temporal aspect to it all, that Monday's crisis can't be resolved on Monday and will look very different on Tuesday. And, I, and, and I, I'm a very impatient person, so I've, I've found that to be quite a profound realization. Also, I'm married to someone that is very patient and is therefore fundamentally a better parent than I am. Um, but we, we make quite a good team because I'm all explosive panic and, and, um, and she's a calm, uh, wise, uh, intuitive person. And you need a bit of both maybe sometimes. I, I had a thing recently when my son kept, my eldest son who's glued to his mobile phone as many people his age are, as many people as full stop are, and he started telling me about something very unpleasant, a uh, conspiracy theory, and I erupted. Um, I was really angry and shocked because it was a devastating thing to hear my child coming out with this stuff. And of course it was the terrible mistake that people in this book make and that we make and that I've observed other people making, which is I didn't let him finish. What he was in fact going to tell me was that it was an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and how shocking that was and he'd been reading about it. And the poor kid, it's not like he was just looking at shit on YouTube. He was reading like History Today magazine article about, you know, the, the, pernicious longevity of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and he was just going to talk to me about it. And I flew off the handle and said, you know, I don't have your mobile phone anymore. I knew this would happen, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to put a Google block on oh, I don't, What's a Google block? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk to my close personal friend, um, Musk, about this. Um, but it, what it taught me was that the, the, some of the insights I'm gaining as a writer in relation to made-up people in my books, I'm not applying to my own life. And I found that um, interesting and clarifying. One of the things, again... Perhaps I've done better in my in my writing life than I have in my real life is the absence of comparative thinking, comparative parenting. You have to pay attention to the to the line you're in, right? You you have you have to make the books more themselves. Um, it, it's such a it's such a fool's errand to you know, and writers of all stages do it. But you know, you, you you're writing, and then you, you know, then you read the new Jory Graham, and, and you're like, damn, I'm going to make my I'm not as good as Jory Graham, and, and various imitative things would creep in that would you'd be trying to make your work more like Jory Graham or whatever. So I I I really think with my my children, I've I've worked incredibly hard to think of them as in, as as individuals, and to not apply moral panics or diagnostic language or cause and effect thinking or cure you know I'm not trying to cure these children I'm trying to let them be and, and I and I've learned that slowly I think also with boys this sense that they are just in this linguistically and behaviorally that they, they are in this 
pickle that we've got them and in, in, in the kind of boomer mentality also like, so we fucked it, so you're gonna have to fix it, um, which is so dangerous and, and, and is such a counterproductive mentality to give to young people because it, it's giving them a problem before they even had a chance to make their own problems, of course. And until we make our own problems, we can't devise ways to fix them. So I think I've been really attuned to the ways that they won't be worried about the same things I'm worried about. And they won't have the same language I have for that concern. Um, and that every generation of parents realize that as, as well, I suppose, don't they? And sometimes, sometimes too late. When they were younger, I worried that they didn't draw. And so I did this sort of ridiculous panicked dash to Hobbycraft and bought, you know, more pens, more pencils. And of course, that's not what makes them draw. But if I leave, if I leave the paper around, sure enough, they'll draw. Um, and I, and, and even if they weren't drawing, I'm sure they're doing something else. And so I, like the trust economy that I've put so much freight in as a writer, trusting my collaborators, trusting my readers, why have I not applied the same to my children? Who, of course, have turned out wildly different than I expected and super cool and interesting and, um, yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question, but I, um, I'm learning. <laughs> I also think, I, you know, not having a dad and realizing through this work and through, like, going to palliative care conferences <laughs> to deliver lectures and stuff, I realized the extent to which we trap our parents, dead or alive, in narrative frameworks that serve our purposes, like day-to-day -day emotional purposes or also longer-term political or spiritual purposes and how cruel and un un unimaginative that is um, to them. Like I, I, I make a point of, you know, like the kids in my first book say, you know, we were careful to name her granny when dad became granddad. The sense always, and it's again, it's a hauntological thing, I think, of just there are ghosts in the room and we are remiss if, if we don't remember that. You know, the idea that we are here and that even lived the lived present is this sort of privileged point of view like we have to think of the scores decades billions behind us and that might help us think more fruitfully about the people that are to come um, and that i think that that works as a model agriculturally i think it works as a model politically um the fetishize the capitalist fetishization of the present profit over long-term gain is, is 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 bizarre and frightening and it's nothing like having children to to clarify that i suppose first i wanted to say I don't know how you do it as a parent, write books that when you pick them up, you immediately are like, I can't put this down because I'm going to go to bed traumatized if this kid dies. Like, how do you do that? But also, I was curious, <laughs> I read this and I loved when you asked, when Lanny asked, um, which do you think is more patient, an idea or hope? And I noticed that in this book and then as you've been talking about your other books, a lot of, a lot of your writing has to do with time and how you use that on your pages, obviously. You're, you're very artistic with how you do that. I love that. But what would you say? What would, what would you, how would you answer that question? What do you think is more patient? Well, I'd answer that question as, because I wrote that question as a question that would annoy Robert at 3 a.m. <laughs> so often people quote that and say, like, if you like books where people say shit like this to each other. I'm like, no, no, no. People don't say shit like this to each other in this book. One child says that at one point in his stressed dad's life when the dad's got to get up at th in three hours and, and it's a way of throwing into sort of a shocked crisis that relationship which is which is malfunctioning you know between shy and, between lanny and his father but i do think it's kind of a cool question i suppose it, it, it's it's like a it's like one of those riddles that doesn't really have an answer but i have come to realize that it's the same right that that the 
that what people often call hope in a lazy way of like uh, something that is tethered to the future that has it's a bit like forgiveness needing both parts right so so you can't just make an apology it has to be heard and so the radical act of of forgiving oneself or being forgiven requires the apology to be heard and accepted right and that requires in itself faith and so hope requires faith you can't just have hope notionally it has to be built on or connected organically to to a foundation of onward belief um and that to me is what ideas are they are gestures into the shared space um so if i wasn't a sleep deprived city banker at 3am losing losing his temper with his son i think i would want to sit down and talk about because i i think again it's just like this tyranny of hope as a, as a framework that we that we that we irresponsibly slide to younger generations you know li- literally right well like, oh you'll come up with a tidal energy form or you'll you'll somehow unpick yourself from the way that these phones have enslaved you all and and and, and like created a mental health disaster the scale of which we could never have imagined even 10 or 15 years ago got to have hope like hope 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 i remember i remember during the pandemic my neighbors wrote hope in big letters on their wall and i was like why hope like vaccines uh you know um you know like global cooperation between nations to ensure vaccine equality but hope i'm not sure but that you know that but then you know good conversations with my kids who were like i think what it means is like hope that people will do exactly that like everyone's hopes different dad and i was like all right you little, all right you all right you brilliantly clever little little guy yeah so um i don't know but i like that you would ask it uh, but also the terror is the thing right the anxiety the crippling is what i mean, what i was saying about grief earlier the, the the crippling uncertainty the restlessness to address with as much exactitude as we possibly can the various different crises that we are in personally and, and and as a group that refusal to settle on pre-existing ideas of of solution or, or even cause and effect that's where that's when you have ideas it's in is in the crisis is in is in is in the difficulty so it's a bit like the question of why is is difficult poetry worth persevering like it because it is on your second or third attempt to a difficult thing that that hope or clarification does emerge um so they'd be they'd be um manifestos for a bit like I always call them in the UK anti-tabloid devices books because the the reproduction and regurgitation of existing narratives of bigotry or xenophobia or racism um it's just the it's just the unexamined life it's just it's just a pure junk product being sold to the to the you know the lowest common denominator just for for the recycling profit and what what hope and complex crisis conversations and pain and and healing what those things allow is is progress for us all as thinking feeling beings well sadly we're getting the signal we're out of time But uh, I hope What's the signal? I didn't see it for our, <laughs> for our listeners. Oh, it's a beautiful d- modern dance. I, I, <laughs> only I, only at Powell's. <laughs> I hope you'll come back to Portland again. Let's give a big round of applause to Thank Max you. Porter. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Max Porter's work at maxporter, 
www.thebetweenthebeatsmovement.co.uk. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for the conversation, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, which includes Max's reading of the poem he wrote for the singer-songwriter Joan Shelley, the Ten House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog et Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.